Hello, and welcome to the second Jaffa Cakes for Proust in April. John and myself, Gary, is... Mr. Tiltereisa. Now, first things first. Let me say a big thank you to all of you who inquired about my strange voice in some previous podcasts. I did have a little bit of a throat condition, a bit of an ailment. It's on the way out, so it's not 100%, but I've got my throat spray here. What is it called? Bins and... Whatever it is. Um, and that makes everything better. So, yes, all's well. And Tilt, you were a wee bit under the weather as well, were you not? Yes, I was, yes. That's why we ended up going out on the second Friday of April instead of the first. Well, you know, these things happen, but what the heck. We're here now, and that's the main thing. This is actually the first time I've used this throat spray. So, I don't know what the side effects are going to be like, and it could be that I end up just babbling incoherent nonsense within the first few minutes of the show so that was quite clearly a feed line for tilt to say so what's new boom tish but anyway i thought i would actually turn it down <laughs> there just comes a point when it ceases being cross talk and it just becomes abuse and i listened recently i thought we could actually drop some of those lines and the world would still be pretty much the same place well there's another way to find out isn't there but it could be that there was Little lines have developed a fan base of their own, and if you drop them, then you might get negative feedback. Who knows? We'll find out. Yeah. Well, anyway, so here we are. This is an odd one, isn't it? Because this is a sort oh, of... Oh, this is a failure, really, in some ways. We were looking at our schedule. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're not talking about the podcast. Don't... We're not talking about the podcast today. Don't think this is a failure so you can switch off. We don't, we don't no, mean that. No. Th- this is a failure on our part as podcasters. Let me approach this. We're looking at our schedule. And I have managed to push things into the every other week category for the moment. Because we're thinking, if you look at certain aspects of television fantasy, you get the downloads in. It's a good way of making people aware that you're doing stuff. But if you only do that, we're failing to fulfill our remit. Do we have a remit? Yes, it's not one that we can put easily into words, but we kind of know what it is. It's not been granted by the IBA, so I don't know if we need to be strictly bound by it. Overlooked stuff, overlooked approaches to familiar stuff. So we're saying, right, after we've done Pathfinders, let's do something else. And we went through a list of DVDs we owned, and as with Sitcom Club, we just kept shooting down each other's suggestions to give you an idea of how far down the list we got through today's show is zodiac (laughs) but it's not really outside of the television fantasy realm it's not a pure fantasy show to stand aside stuff like doctor who or some of the itc shows but it's kind of approaching that world and it's a failure And it's an interesting failure. It's a failure I think we can talk about. And it's a failure that when we get to certain things about why it went wrong, it will have helped us get our heads into the place we need to be for next time's podcast when we are looking at a famous television fantasy failure. Are we going to tell people what that show is just now? Let's say that at the end. Let's start by talking about The Avengers. You were watching The Avengers the other day, weren't you? I saw a wee bit of The Avengers. It was the headmaster from Please Sir, and he had this machine that could make things small. Before he knew it, Francis Matthews has got hold of it, 
and they're steed climbing into a tank and Francis <laughs> Matthews has got the wee device on him and bink and he makes a tank small enough to put in his pocket and so on. So I didn't actually get to the end because I got distracted. But that's what was going on. That was a gist. I'm thinking about the shadow that that show cast. Or should we go back even further? Just that men, woman, humorous interplay and light thriller storylines because sometimes the Avengers is espionage, sometimes it's just crime. It never quite settles down what it is. For a while, it did seem to be a formula that people were trying to recapture. And unfortunately, right now, I can only think of two examples, and we're going to be talking about both of them. But there's another thing. When people started really writing about the history of television, in terms of programs, not in terms of personalities, the telefantasy guys got there first, didn't they? Do you agree with me? I think that's probably fair enough. Yeah, I think there was a void. They're the ones writing the episode guides. And so we get to a stage where there's a faint feeling in the air that the golden age of television was when fantasy shows were being made. The good old days are the days of The Saint, The Avengers, Department S, Blake 7, Ace of Wands, that sort of thing. And you end up with the distorted perception, I think, that that's what the high-quality television was. You either were watching fantasy or you're watching soap operas. The clever people were watching the fantasy shows. I don't think that's strictly true. It's not true, is it? No. And I'm not saying this necessarily for a paper trail of articles I read. Sometimes it was people I met and spoke to. You'd get them into certain topics, and they'd think that the intelligent television of the past was the stuff with fantasy elements, overlooking single plays or other challenging drama. Where would you put something like Upstairs, Downstairs? Do you consider that a soap? No. I like Upstairs, Downstairs. I'm just coming towards the end of a full-blown rewatch. There's plenty of series like that, which I don't think you would consider them soap operas, but neither are they cult, fan-type shows. They're just popular, populist drama. But Upstairs, Downstairs, I think would something like that in the past, when people were talking about old television, would be written off as something for housewives. And things like Public Eye would get blank looks. Fortunately, things like that have made a big comeback in the DVD age. I think you got people who were suddenly getting to an age in their collecting that they were about the right age to start watching Public Eye, and the tastes become more Catholic. But we still have this problem that a lot of the talk about television had this fantasy base. I don't know, it's just always been that thing of old movies have a level of cachet that old television doesn't on either side of the Atlantic. In the US, TCM has a certain image. And I think it's upwardly mobile and cosmopolitan and kind of cool. And TV land and Antenna TV and Me TV, they don't have that image. Much more sort of meat and potatoes. Hey, if you hadn't seen it, it's new to you. And come on in and it's all your old friends and so on and so on. Whereas yeah, TCM is sort of using, here's James Mason and Audrey Hepburn. And all the nice black and white graphics and what have you. Yeah, it's it, it's marketing well, itself as a sort of lifestyle choice. It's a bit stupid. So I guess I wanted to look at a couple of failures to make myself feel better about the fact that geeks ruin everything. Is that potentially a talking point for a future show? Geeks ruin everything. No, it's just everything. abuse. It's just me being angry at the world. Well, Damn there's nothing it. wrong with that. I got angry the other day. I told you I stubbed my toe and it was actually 
screaming into thin air at one point. So, you know, it does happen. So we're going to be talking about a show next time. And in the meantime, well, what actually happened is we got it all a bit sort of about face, didn't we? Because we watched this show that we're not going to name until the end of the show first. And then we went backwards. And I think at first you suggested some very curious thing. Was it called the Corridor People? Was that what it was? Oh, yeah, we could talk about the Corridor People. You just shot oh, that down. It's only no, four episodes. No, no, no. You said, right, listen, listeners, right, listen to this, right? It's very no, no, culty sh- and hip. It. Yeah, Another on, thing I'd like to talk about sometime is how swinging Granada Television no. could be. No, it wasn't. It wasn't swinging. It was excruciating. Honestly, right, listeners. Okay, what's right, like what? Right, two minutes. Till sent me this trailer, and it's. I think it's. Is it network? It's out on DVD. And so this is trailer for this thing called Carter People, and there's lots of people you recognise in it. There's lots of faces. John Sharp is one of the main people in it, but it looks like people who thought that the first weekend of London Weekend Television was too populist. And it's all these ridiculous like camera angles and people staring down the lens and everything's overblown and everything's trying to be sort of kooky. And it's like, yeah, the the Avengers, that was a bit sort of, how would you say, accessible? Yeah, we're not like that at all. But we're also trying to go after the same audience. And honestly, after four minutes of this, I couldn't sit through it. Four minutes. Four minutes. That trailer was nowhere four minutes. It was. It was four minutes. I remember it just felt like four minutes. But anyway, so no, I shot that down. If your curiosity is peaked, do let us know if you want us to talk about the Corridor people. No, no. If you want to hear Tilt talk about the Corridor people by himself for an hour and a half. Yeah, knock yourself out. You don't but, want to talk about it as an interesting failure. No, but, but it just there's a point at which it stops being entertaining. And as far as the show we're talking about next time is concerned, that was about five minutes in. But for some reason, I persisted with that because we'd sort of agreed to do it by then. I was sort of tricked into it. Your mistake was sending me the trailer to the Corridor people. She never sent me that. She have sent me the first episode and I would have sat through it and I would have thought, well, there's only three of them to go. What the hell? So... Eventually, we move on to this other series, which, on balance, I quite enjoyed. And yeah, I get that it's not one that was particularly successful, but at the same time, it didn't have me tear my hair out with the impression that they were saying, oh, look at us, we're so different and weird and clever and kooky and everything. It was just a nice little show that had its own little angle and for whatever reason didn't quite take off. But So flipping back to the Avengers, one thing that it originally had that faded as the show went on was the idea of bringing different professions together. So initially it's a doctor and a spy or some sort of high-level criminal investigator. There's a lot of just straightforward crime stuff in the first series of The Avengers. And that's something that exists in this show with a policeman and what did they call them? Astrologers. Astrologers, that's it. And I can see how that might sound interesting in a pitch, certainly in the early 70s, the age of Aquarius and mood rings and spangles and space hoppers. I don't know. You've got to stop living in the past, Peter. But I think that's where the problem begins. Criminal investigation and astrology are not really that complementary as disciplines. They're not, are they? Is astrology really complementary with anything apart from... And I'm going to be really polite about this because... I've got more views on the matter, but I don't think this is the right place for them. So I'm, I'm going to be perfectly well, no, polite. Let's obey the rules set by this show. In this show, astrology is factual, provable, definitely a thing which works. That is the rules of the television show. There isn't really a, ooh, maybe, maybe not. No, that, as far as this television show is concerned, astrology works. 
even obeying that rule, it doesn't make for good detective work. I'm not entirely sure I can really put my finger on why. Let me just say it out loud. If you find a lump of clay that's only found in a particular district of London and they just happen to be ticking up the pavements there, so, ah, yes, right, we, we can put him down to which street he was on, that's fine. That seems to be playing by the rules of detective fiction. If you just say, oh, I, I, I've had a look and I think the murderer is a Piscean, Oh, right, we've narrowed him down to Pisces. That just seems like taking a shortcut. Throughout these episodes, there just seems to be that odd combination. Actually, it seems to depend more on astrology than detective work. And so your lead characters, it feels just like they're cheating. It does feel like that, yes, because I suppose if there was, there was a bit more about how Anton Rogers had actually found out all these different bits of information. And it turned out then Anushka Hempel's instinct was actually backed up by all of his detective work, you know, perhaps unbeknownst to each other. And that'd be one thing. But if her astrology is actually then prompting him to go off and do his policing, then it, it feels a bit... Oh, let's give him the proper names. Anton Rogers is David Gradley, and he is a detective, an officer of the law. And Anushka Hempel is Esther Jones. Initially, they don't know each other, do they? Because they, they meet as a result of this first case in the first episode. But then, do they become an item, would you say? Yes, definitely. And it seems to come out of nowhere. For the first few episodes, they're just hanging around, shooting little barbs off each other, like a pair of really good pals. And then I think it's towards the end of the fifth, out of the six episodes, there's immediate snogging about to take place. But there doesn't seem to have been any build to their relationship. So just one more thing that, because something you said reminded me of the successful and now not quite as famous as he used to be detective, Paul Temple. It's another thing for the basis of detective fiction is deduction versus instinct. So Paul Temple was very deductive, but his wife, Steve, had these great instincts and they would complement and contrast with each other. So that's a fairly standard setup. Again, Paul Temple's the only one that springs to mind, but I think if you just went through all the detective fiction in the world, you'd find a hell of a lot of deductive men and intuitive women as a format. But astrology's not deduction by the rules of this show. It's science combined with art. So that just seems to be the first place it falls down. So is this a case of mid-70s television, it's looking for an angle, it's looking for something because we've had the transition as far as police drama is concerned. We've had the gradual transition from, you know, you've had Dixon Dot Green, you've had Zed Cars, you've got the Sweeney coming along now and everything's getting a bit grittier. As far as detectives are concerned, you've had all manner of different flavours of detectives over the years and different sort of angles that they've had or whatever the particular shtick is. So is this now getting to the point where we need something? We can't just have another detective. We need something here which is going to mark us out as different. Television's always on the lookout for something high concept. I'm sure if we dare watch Houdini and Doyle, we'd have some very interesting comparisons. But the things I've heard about it make me not want to watch it. I'd rather that they made a TV show of the Einstein twin mysteries from Tales Designed to Thrizzle. I've got to be honest and say that I prefer the Never the Twin Mysteries. <laughs> Oh, why not? Why couldn't that have happened? That would have been fabulous. That's like that time you thought there was such a thing as the Roper's Detective School. <laughs> yes. Well, a bit of background. 
In The Stage, the 20th of May, 1971, there was a report. Zodiac, this Avengers-style pilot lies uncompleted on the shelf. And it was a London Weekend International production, which would indicate to me that it's a film series. And Anuska Hempel mentions it in an interview with the Australian Woman's Weekly. It's called Zodiac, and I play an astrologer. John Fraser, who's in Australia at the moment, plays a policeman. So somebody tried this. Originally, it's an early 70s film concept. The stage describes it as Avengers style. Somebody has high hopes pinned on this idea, and it doesn't happen. And I haven't been able to find out much more. But eventually, it ends up at Thames in 1974. Now, it says here, developed by Roger Marshall. Different companies credit different things in different ways. It could be that it's his baby and they've just given him the developed by. Or it could be that something's landed on his desk and he's working it into something usable. Roger Marshall, of course, co-creator of Public Eye. So that raised my hopes. But then again, and why is Anuska Hempel still involved three years later with a change of company? Is it her thing? There's an untold story here, and unfortunately, we're not telling it. Oh, but the Australian Woman's Weekly clip is from September 1970. So that looks around about the time it's being made. We don't have access to the stage archive. <laughs> Otherwise, we might have been able to find out slightly more. Well, yes and no. Cause the thing is that, okay, there'll be articles about it in 1970, but then if it's going to lie on the shelf, it's going to go quiet. Isn't it? I said don't have access. We're too tight to stump up subscription to the stage archive. Right, we need complete total honesty with the listeners as well. We actually know people who've got access to the stage archives. Do and we? I, yes, we do. And they've previously said... I don't! Well, they've previously said, if you want me to look anything up, then I'm quite happy to do so. So it's a massive research failure on our part. Anyway, never mind about that. Maybe we'll find that information out. We'll come back with that in two weeks' time. We need a hook. Zodiac comes along, 1974, it's your man, Anton Rogers, from TV's own Fresh Fields, 10 years later. And Anushka Hempel's still there. And initially we have this, no, oh, what? Right, this, I think this first episode is possibly what got me. You want to rearrange those words, you could actually make a sentence. No, hang on, because eventually something will come out that's usable. The first episode... You're the one who's saying you weren't getting enough abuse, the listeners would miss it. No, well, no... But abuse has to be earned, and I think that I'm doing a pretty good job of earning it. Now, anyway, the point is, in this first episode, you've got this businessman. He gets done away with, so that's where it all starts. He's got this, like, home office from 1974. This is good gear. He's got a Reuters machine in his office. He's got his own news printer. Imagine having that. That's fabulous. I mean, okay, nowadays you get, like, the beep, and it's, like, Sky or BBC telling you, what the breaking news is, but everybody gets it at the same time. He might have actually got the news before everybody else. Imagine that. Imagine getting the news before other people got it. Imagine the fun you can have with that on Twitter these days. And I bet it made a hell of a noise when it was coming out as well. Ding, 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 and starts printing it off on Dot Matrix. I bet he got one of the first Teletext TVs. Oh, yeah. He probably had a Philips N1500 video recorder as well. Isn't 70s aspiration a little bit more appealing than 80s aspiration? Well, yeah, I suppose so. Because 80s aspiration, I sort of associate that with speedboats and and nonsense like that and fast cars and all that kind of stuff. Whereas 70s and late 60s, it's about... Big chunky ashtrays. Well, it's about technology and what you can do with it. It's about machines that you didn't have before. And some of them are junk, but they're there. 
Whereas I suppose by the 80s, it's more about aspiration in terms of wealth and wealth creation and accumulation and so on. It's less about objects, isn't it? I mean, there's a few things like the mobile phone and so on. But yeah, no, it's 70s aspiration. Ah, what devices? Do you know what's better than doing a line of coke? Uh, What? Off a flat surface in some place that's popular in the 80s. Campari and soda from a little bar in the corner of a living room. A bottle of Advocar that actually gets regularly drunk from. A little bar in the corner of the living room. Now, what kind of ashtray are you going to have? Are you going to have those ones that have got their own stand, so they're actually a piece of furniture in their own right? Plastic cocktail sticks that are shaped like swords. Do you have a tease made in this arrangement? We're getting back to the squirrels, aren't we? Green-faced lady, soda stream. Okay, this is a key one because I like the fact that in the Likely Lads that this is part of Bob and Felma's acquired junk, I suppose you could say. They're acquired items for the new house. But it's presented as if it's almost like an essential item. The can opener. The can opener which needs to be secured to the wall to open the tins. A manual tin opener is very 1950s. It's very double your money, isn't it? It's old hat. Avocado bath sweets. Plaster ducks in pairs flying up the stairs. What I'm saying is, don't bother describing the plot of this episode. I can't remember it myself. Just highlight the little interesting things. One thing that needs saying before we go any further, Anton Rogers is fantastic. He is, isn't he? Yes. And he's an interesting little phase in his career. Because in the 60s, I think he was pretty villainous. Gideon's Way, an episode where he's playing somebody way younger than he actually is, but they're basically a bunch of smart, young Chelsea set who commit crimes with Derek Folds. Rotten to the Core. That, that might be a good movie to watch. Maybe uh, Tyler wants to join us for that. Part intended for Peter Sellers that ended up falling to Anton Rogers. I think he's a badin in a Maigret. Certainly sneers in it a lot in a particular episode of May Gray. The Schizoid Man Prisoner episode, number two. The 60s, Anton Rogers is suave but nasty. He's a Toby Mears type. Of course, 80s Anton Rogers is lovable sitcom husband. Fresh Fields, French Fields and Mid to December and all that stuff. 70s Anton Rogers is in an interesting place. I'm trying to think of things I've seen him in. Um... Miniseries about Lily Langtree, where he plays Mr. Langtree, who's an absolute brute, but still at the end you think, well, he gets a disproportionate retribution for just how nasty he was. This really portrait of a romantic where he plays a Tufton Bufton type country Tory who hates Disraeli and then takes him under his wing. Yes, yeah, 70s Anton Rogers, I think that's interesting because there isn't quite a set role for him in drama, so he just does whatever he has. And in this, he's. Really charismatic, got a great presence, nice, flippant, dry way about him. And in episode one, there is absolutely no chemistry between him and Anuska Hempel. And I think that is another one of the problems, because it's episode one. There's no spark in that episode. Oh, you disagree? Great. Well, not quite disagree as such, but I would say... If this was a 2016 drama, then they'd be expected to have chemistry within the first two minutes. But in 1974, we've got a bit more elbow room, have we not? We've got a bit more time for things it's to develop It's not slow building chemistry. It's just not there. It's not that they're antagonistic. Because, of course, initially, yes, they start as she's a suspect and he's a policeman. 
he's interested in what she has to say about astrology. That's an interesting thing. He has no scepticism, does he? We're not talking X-Files style. No, I think that he's got an ounce of healthy scepticism towards anything because he's a police officer, so he's used to people telling them fibs and so on. So, yeah, he still takes a thing with a pinch of salt, but it isn't specifically directed to her line of business. But I don't sense any spark in this episode. And initially, I'm writing down thinking, well, this is fantastic. I'm just going to talk about the lack of chemistry. But from episode two, the chemistry is building, and then episode three onwards, it's there. They actually make a pretty good double act. Episode four, they're practically doing it. Episode five, I don't even think that they could broadcast We're not doing the river again. What? Get over it. What did I say about the river? I didn't suggest that they actually did it in there, did I? The river had that kind of development where it was like exponential desire. Did he want to do a plot description? Because I can't remember what happens. All I can remember is John Reese davis has a lot of stuff in his fantastic 70s apartment that I'd like to live in. It was him, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Okay, there's this businessman and this fella gets found dead in his bath or whatever. There you have it. I was too busy looking at all the, the technology and the toys and what have you to really take in what was going on. So herself, she's been doing this guy's chart or something and so Anton Rogers that leads him to her and then so on so on. And it turns out it wasn't her, it was himself. I knew it wasn't going to be himself because it's always himself, isn't it? John Reese davis he's, he always does it, doesn't he? There's an episode of the Sweeney where he didn't necessarily do it, but he's still on the wrong and side of the law. in Budgie, he's Charlie Endel's enforcer, laughing spam fritter. So it's interesting seeing suave 70s Reese davis because I'd been used to him wearing this big coat and having long hair. Whereas the second episode I remember a lot more about because it starts with a good hook. It begins with the sale of a rare stamp. Michael Gambon is a tough-talking businessman. And really, the, the problem with the 80s are the fault of the 70s because that's when businessmen started to be sexy instead of just there. Michael Gambon is the type who probably uses the phrase work hard and play hard. Like that means anything. A Mars a day helps you work, rest and play, if you know what I mean. The red car and the blue car had a race. All red wants to do is stuff his face. He eats everything he sees from trucks to prickly trees. But good old blue, he took the Milky Way. Actually, I always have a problem with that advert. That it reminds me of uh, MacArthur Park. The red car and the blue car had a race. All the sweet green icing flowing down. <laughs> Okay, well, there's a YouTube re-edit that needs to be done by the end of tonight. Of so it starts, tonight. Michael Gambon has bought a rare stamp and he sets fire to it because now there's only one left in the world and he has it. It really has nothing to do with anything. But it just shows you that he's a ruthless kind of guy who will do whatever it takes to get from A to B and then back to A. The problem with this episode of Zodiac was I'd already watched Public Eye and there's an episode of Public Eye that follows similar lines just without the astrology. There's just enough that like, I already know who did it because Roger Marshall's reused the basis of an idea. It's not a one-for-one -one plot, but I already know who did it. Episode three is where it starts to harmonise the idea of astrology and detection because it's really a crime case involving... Esther, the astrologer. I know we can say that about the first episode, but that's more of a, she's on the sidelines of a crime. In this, a pickup artist, as they didn't call them in those days, is for some reason getting astrological charts 
from Esther and using them to pick up women. Now, who shall we get for the role of the pickup artist? I think they chose well. Norman Ashley being slimy. It's just, it's, it's horrible. His oiliness. I've almost got the feeling that Norman Ashley maybe punched the air when he saw this script because I am going to go to town on this. Oh, this is going to be good. You really get a sense of an actor enjoying himself. Do, what does he quote song lyrics? That, well, I've been done that twice already. But then, in my defence, one of them was a Milky Way advert. That's really the best part of this: is watching Norman Ashley being slimy. So this is Norman Ashley, sort of the first time he's in Man Up at the House, where he's trying to get with Chrissy, but he's already married and what have you. I'd like to say that the same kind. Where does the butler come in? Because. Esther is involved in the case, do we need another person for David to bounce ideas off? There's one scene where Grad, as Esther calls him, Anton Rogers' character, David Gradley, is doing the washing up with the butler. And I remember the first time around I watched this series. The reason why I owned this series on DVD, just bought it speculatively. The network was having one of its many wonderful 40% sales. <laughs> one of which has just ended the week before this podcast goes out. Just bought it speculatively. Uh, so I watched this once without having my podcasting head on. And I remember that scene because I thought, this is the show I want to be watching. Anton Rogers and his butler go solving crimes. There seemed to be just a little bit more oddity going on. But this is only episode two, so the chemistry which does eventually develop between Esther and Grad just hasn't happened yet so but again it, it gives you a weird don't show a better relationship this early on again we're talking about what fun it has and the villain gets his comeuppance i don't really want to break down the plot of this i can't remember most of it it faded very quickly from my mind we're already on episode three so if you see a tangent take it i agree that the interplay with the butler is good fun is there a place for the butler in all six episodes do you think could he be a regular character? You ever watched Hadley? No. But I'm Just aware of, of its work. No, the butler in series three and four of that. Did you ever hear Gerald that Harper's kind of... Champagne and Roses on TalkSport? No, I never did. Ah, oh, you missed out there. That was quite something. Because bear in mind, we're not talking about 1980s here. We're talking about, when was this? 2002, I think it was. Just out of nowhere. There it is on a Saturday night. And I don't think it lasted too long. But it was something that he'd been doing on Capital Radio some sort of 20, 30 years previously. A new controller came in and said, this is what we want. It was delightful. It was unique, I suppose you would say. But there was nothing else like it on the radio on a Saturday night. I think, and I can't remember if he, if he, I can't remember if he took over from Tommy Boyd's slot when Tommy Boyd got the sack or if it was the other way around. Not that Gerald Harper got the sack, but you know what I mean. But yeah, ah, oh, fun and games. You know, I said I can't really talk about the plot. There isn't much plot. Norman Ashley is getting astrological charts from Esther and using them to pick up women, cheat them out of money, and then move on. And he has to be stopped, and they stop him. The plot doesn't twist, does it? They set up a trap for him, and it's very satisfying, and it's got wonderful, like say, character moments. Ashley just being so oily, and them trying to work out what exactly his plan is. And the nice thing of, like, when he's in funds, he gets a new TV, and when he's out of funds, it gets taken away again. It's got moments, but 
it's not meaty. There is a bit. Now, because there are times where I think that the astrology is taken over a bit too much and we don't really see a great deal of policing going on. Whereas in this one, we do have a little bit of Columbo action, don't we, from Anton Rogers, because he goes to this florist where Norman Eshley's wife works. And he's doing the sort of full-on character acting. Yeah, he's, he's pretending that he's looking for the right kind of flowers and what have you, and he's tapping her for information and all he's this kind of stuff. pretending to be posher than he actually is. Yeah, yeah. And reminded me a little bit of, I think we watched an episode of Callan, where Edward Woodward was deliberately making himself out to be like sort of gauche and as if he didn't really know his way around the place and what have you. Reminded me a little bit of that. And I, the, the only disappointment was that Anton Rogers didn't actually have a disguise on during that point because he should have had like a full-on, you know, thick pair of glasses, tash. That's the thing. Grad is interesting enough without the astrology. Grad and the butler. That would have been a good name for it, wouldn't it? Grad and the butler. You can imagine seeing that in the Radio Times circa 1975, couldn't you? I'm thinking, I'm now thinking back to the 60s show Sergeant Cork. Cork's sidekick, Constable Marriott, the whole thing is that he went to the right school and the right university and decided out of nowhere to become a policeman. It seemed weirdly shocking, but it gives him unusual connections. It gives him connections to society that most policemen didn't have. The Inspector Allard Mysteries is a thing that exists, and I faintly remember that that was his thing. He was posh. So what would be the selling points of a 70s posh policeman? I suppose greater social equality is eating away at one end of his world. His world is decaying. But still we have crimes where his knowledge is useful. They've almost got an inverted Columbo. I guess sometimes we'd have to have him investigating slimy alleys with strangled men in them. And sometimes high class. Well, we're not writing a pitch document for a TV show that we can't make anymore. Here's a thought. I would have liked to have seen a little bit of Gradley's office and his commander and what have you, and actually have heard a little bit about what they think about him getting mixed up in all this astrological mumbo-jumbo when it comes to solving the cases. Because we never actually see any of that, do we? We never see Gradley go into his office, if he's got one. We hear one side of his conversation when he's speaking with his superior on the phone, but that's it. And I imagine his superior is somebody like, I don't know, Robert Raglan or Reginald Marsh or John Ringham or somebody like that who hasn't really got a lot of time for all this star-gazing nonsense. Yeah, that, that never comes. You're always sort of half expecting that there's going to be a crunch point, but it never happens. So moving on to episode four. This is the one that really interested you, Saturn's Rewards, because there was political scandal involved. Let me tell you now, the date of this, it went out on the 18th of March, 1974. What political scandal was piquing your interest? Are you trying to work out how it related to this episode? Well, it wasn't so much political scandal per se. It was I was trying to work out where in relation to the election this had gone out. And I suspect this probably wouldn't have gone out a couple of weeks earlier because the, the first election, there was two of them in 74, was at the end of February. So I suppose we're okay then. This can go out in March. It's all right because he's clearly identified as one of those that are socialist MPs. And he's seen a bit of business go on with the Return of the Saint opposite in the next window or whatever, and he keeps it to himself. Let me translate this into English. What happens is Peter Vaughan is playing a Labour MP and he witnesses a murder in the style of Rear Window. He's across the street, 
and somebody commits a murder with the curtains open. As I said about Peep Show and looking at pornography with the bedroom door open, I don't even check TV arc with the bedroom door open, and I certainly don't check it with the curtains open. Don't somebody say, is he looking at Trevor Baker's All Weather Show again? Don't want that kind of judgment being placed on you. But some people, like Ian Ogilvy's character, feel that they can commit murder with impunity with the curtains drawn. The thing is, is that Peter Vaughan is not where he is meant to be with a woman he is meant to be with. So he's witnessed a crime, but he can't tell about it without implicating himself in a scandal. And that, to me, is a very strong basis for a plot. You know what? This is one of those situations where I might want to say, just stop. Or jump forward 10 minutes, because if you're thinking of buying Zodiac, this might be one you want to experience clean. All we've described so far is in the pre-credit sequence. But there's an interesting twist. If you want to know how the plot turns, then stay with us. Okay? Let's get the network together or split the network apart now. Peter Vaughan's daughter is getting married. To Ian Ogilvy, the murderer. Yeah, we mean Ian Ogilvy as in ripping yarns Ian Ogilvy, not as a nice panellist on Give Us a Clue. Again, a Toby Mears type. And there's one beautiful bit, I mean, I'm not saying the only beautiful bit in the entire series, but there's one bit that really stuck in my mind. Part of their investigation, Grad and Esther are discussing who the murderer might be. And Ian Ogilvy walks in in the background. I don't know, I just thought it was a fantastic bit of stage work. It's always nice sometimes having more knowledge than the characters. But to do it in that way, they're not even aware that he's behind them, never mind aware that he's the murderer. We should just clarify, if people listen to this recently having heard a discussion about Pathfinders, we don't mean that Ian Ogilvy just took up his next spot and was, you know, it happened <laughs> so that he ended up on camera. No, his character deliberately Like Duncan compressed in that Acorn Antiques where you see him walk past the window and do like a pipe gesture with his, <laughs> go for a couple of jars afterwards. No, it wasn't like that at all. It was entirely planned and, and remains in the show for that reason. This show gets better as it goes on, doesn't it? It does. This, I agree with you, this is one of the more engaging episodes i think this would have been a really really good one actually to open with although i understand that the way it's been arranged you know, david and Esther you know what there is a lot to be said for that no continuity style of just like done in one why not have a little song in the opening titles that tells you what's happening and that way when you've got all of them in the can you can just shuffle them and put them out in whatever order i know some people think it might be hack work or artless but sometimes it's the right thing to do this might be a discussion point for a future show, but there are plenty of shows, drama, comedy, and so on, which have long-form versions of the credit sequence on episode one, and then a curtailed version for all the other episodes. So why can't we just do that? It still doesn't have to fit into the rest of the episode, so you could easily append it onto whatever then story you're going to have as episode one. But you could have like a sort of open all night style opening where it tells you everything you need to know about them. And then you don't need to have all that repetition every single week. As long as you got it across in episode one, and then you get the main points, the pertinent points across in each episode thereafter with the shortened version. Yeah, I've got the theme tune to the Lovematic Grandpa stick in my head. <laughs> I cannot believe that they cut that for syndication. 
Are we asking people to write as a Zodiac theme tune? Yes. What tempo? See, now you start throwing these musical jargon bits at me. I mean, what was it you said the other day about it had to be semaphore or something? I don't even know what you meant. What was it, what was it you said the other day? I was talking about Kawaii Core going mainstream. No, but... nothing to do with that. No, it was about hearty breakfast. You you said that it had to be like um, lowercase. The minor tonality. That's it. What does that mean? Sad. <laughs> it means sad. Sad music. Oh, okay. Right. I get, oh, I get that. Right. Okay. Minor, sad, major, happy. It's, it's not really how it works, but it's the only way I can get it into words you understand. But but I, I don't know about these things. I mean, this is this is some sort of musician. Sometimes it's like talking with somebody whose first language is new speak. See, right, he said he was going to lay off the abuse. and, and you know, Yeah, you know but and, well, for me to lay off the abuse, you need to lay off the incompetence. <laughs> lay on the intelligence. Anyway, so Work smarter, not harder. That's probably another phrase Michael Gambon's businessman uses. So we want a contest, do we? We're going to have contests for theme music for Zodiac. Because Zodiac, the no, theme... No, we need a prize if it was a contest. Well, okay, the prize is... Hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Okay, the prize is... What book have I got on the shelf? I'm not too fussed about giving away. Right, your prize is Robin Cook's autobiography, The Point of Departure, which itself is second-hand, but it's in very good condition. It's paperback version. So, if you want to send us your fully composed, sung, arranged theme tune to Zodiac, which explains the relationship between David and Esther, then please do. And if you're the winner, then you'll win that. I've got a link coming. What a shame Bob Sherman isn't still with us. Because he could write a song, just like he wrote a song for episode 5 of Zodiac, Sting Sting Scorpio. He did, it says, song by Bob Sherman. I don't remember any of this. Right, the Sting Sting Scorpio is another one where they've got a really good reason for Esther being involved. Esther's mentor, the woman who got Esther into astrology, but is now running a little cheap palm reading fortune teller store in Brighton. Thank you. That took a while. I just going to say mind reader. But if you're walking past the thing that said mind reader, you're not going to go in and give them five us. Go on then. What am I thinking of? Yeah, I would. Yeah is murdered. So, it's personal for Esther. Her mentor is murdered, and she goes down to Brighton to take her place. Well, she's not quite determined to solve the case by herself because she somehow manages to get Grad involved. And who does she end up meeting down there? It's only that Beryl Marston, isn't it? Oh, I wish. She just somehow persuades Grad to go down to a different constabulary, you know, Brighton. I don't know all the different police forces, but he's got no jurisdiction. Yeah, but they're all linked, aren't they? Don't they share intelligence or something? Yeah, but you don't actually welcome somebody from a completely different force just coming down saying, well, I have to get involved because the murder victim was a friend of a friend. Yeah, but you've still got knowledge of the case, haven't you? So the, if it could then No, came it doesn't. Out... It's just a friend of a friend. And she's decided that because this policeman is my friend, he's going to be a better policeman than the man with the local... No the man who's played by Wensley Pithy who just looks like a grand old copper who's been ploughing those streets in his boots for God knows how many years and then has ascended to the CID, or rather it's a sideways move in British policing. I'm sorry, I'd... for anybody who is in uniform branch, I understand fully that CID is a sideways move. All I'm saying is Wensley Pithy 
looks like a grand experienced policeman and indeed played such a character in Special Branch. I think we're getting off the point here. The point is that if... Wensley Pithy is always to the point. No, the point is that if a police officer from another territory, let's say, if he suggests that he's got some sort of knowledge... Policemen cannot be assigned to cases by friends of the victim. Be a very different world if that was possible if a friend of the victim was to say to the local constabulary look i reckon you want to speak to this guy up here i know that he's hampshire and you're berkshire but you know let that be he's got some good information for you and then it came out that yes you they just... might call him in and talk to him that doesn't mean they're going to give him an active role in the investigation but anyway mainly esther has taken it upon herself to get to the bottom of this crime to be fair i mean gradley himself he does actually say to esther look you're messing about here quit it don't be doing this Oh, yeah, I'm not criticising the person who wrote the episode because they can't. I'm just thinking, what, what, Esther, Esther, what are you doing? But she's got a feeling, she's got a hunch. She knows something's up. And what is really at the heart of this problem is somebody is working in a hotel who is way too posh to be working as a hotel porter. Robert Powell of Nazareth, with a voice like the Queen's elocution teacher, I'm not saying he's miscast. Yes, I am. I'm saying he's miscast because I can say that because it's not going to take anything away from him. The man once took all the pants people out on a date. So the antagonist in this, this isn't a spoiler because this is one of those open mysteries. And in fact, it's the fact that Esther's mentor, through her astrological and general clairvoyant skill was able to work out something about Robert Powell's character. That's how she gets killed. We know who's behind it all, but I think he's meant to be more of a bad lad. Just a little bit of Alex DeLarge, just that little suggestion, whereas Robert Powell's almost unearthly in how high class he is. So you reckon he should be playing it like in The Detectives, for example? Yeah, we know he can do working class. Now, maybe he wasn't comfortable at that time. Maybe it just didn't occur to anybody to say, Bob Love, can you do a bit of an accent? That my, my impression is, is that in the 70s, everybody addressed each other as Love and by a diminutive of their name. I think that's probably spot on. Would have been great if it had actually been in the episode, hadn't it? Robert Powell's having a confrontation with Susie Blake, his girlfriend, whose mad decision to visit a mind... A, no, was it? A... Fortune teller, that's it. Fortune His decision to visit as fortune teller is what sparks off this whole incident. It would have been great if Robert Powell had been having a confrontation in here and just off camera we heard. <laughs> so we go, Bob Love, can you do an accent? Just have so, you know, him look off the side, look a bit distracted and start going through the... Just keep going and when you find one we like... Yeah. Well, I've never been to South Shields, love, so I don't know what they sound like. I don't think they have tellies up there, darling, so you'll be fine. Is this, I mean, we've only got mono sound at this time, so is this on top of dialogue from Gradley and Co? You know, Italian films, a lot of them are actually made silent and then, I, I, th- I think maybe all of them are made silent and then the dialogue's looped in afterwards. Or maybe not made silent, but made with the minimum of sound because it's all going to be post-production sound. Italian films are dubbed in Italian. And I understand it's because, don't know whether it's still the case, but for the longest time, Italian directors used to like to shout directions while the shooting's going. They want to make adjustments to performances while the performances are being captured. I think more of that should have happened on TV and damn the audience at home. No, no, sadder, sad, no. A little bit dyspeptic. 
I don't know what dyspeptic. Well, you know, but like, like, better tell me trouble. I said, I, just, I said dyspeptic. I didn't say with a case of the runs. When's the break coming up? Yeah, yeah. Can we see if can we see if somebody else is available for this? We'll replace her in the break. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Can I can I actually see all these directions on Oracle page one seventy? Because that would be fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, what you really want, right? You want it on your local ILR station, VHF. You could just listen to that with the dialogue. Oh, what? And it would also be coming from another part of the room as well, so it would give it even more authenticity. Stinks, stinks, Scorpio. I think it works pretty well because Esther's at the centre of it. It's a shame Grant's a little bit pushed off to the side. But there's one piece of elegant television in this. I don't think it's planned. All throughout, Anuska Hempel has this husky voice. She's clearly got a real-life sore throat. It's not acting. Not saying she hasn't got the chops for it, but it's one of those things you can't really fake a sore throat. Not without going to insane levels of method acting that nobody would benefit from for the love of Mike. She's got a sore throat throughout, and there's this bit at the end, because she's in peril, she's being menaced by Robert Powell and his sinister denim fashions. In the end, Grad saves her life, she's very happy to see him, she goes to kiss him, is this the final release of the unresolved sexual tension? No, it isn't, because Grad doesn't want to catch her cold, so he won't kiss her. I just kind of liked that. I've actually got a little tangent that I'd like us to take before we get to the final episode, which is another really good one in this. You mentioned in passing, and it was so in passing that I don't really think, and this is not a criticism by any means, but I don't really think you picked up on the significance of it. You said at the beginning of this dissection of episode five that it's an open case. So we know it was Robert Powell did it because he's pretty much said so. Now, here's the thing about this. We started all those weeks, months, years ago with, I presume, what would be called a closed case because even though John Rhys-Davis says he didn't do it and you sort of suspect that he did, then we don't know. Is this a common thing for dramas, drama series, to mix open and closed cases? And if so, is that a good thing? Or perhaps does it lead to an imbalance over the course of the series with the viewer and their expectations and so on? We all know about Columbo and how that works as far as always cluing you in from the word go. And you've got other shows, you know, Agatha Christie dramas and so on, where you're guessing along. So is that a good thing to have a sort of mix and match approach? Sort of pick and mix? Uh, Monk did it. Monk had occasional open mysteries. And Monk was great right up to the last two episodes that stacked the joint out. What happened in the last two episodes? I mean, no, no spoilers, but... They revealed the ultimate mystery, which was who murdered his wife. And it wasn't Playfair. And he didn't find out by a process of deduction. They went for the emotional beats rather than the logical beats. And it just did not work for me at all. There are two Columbos that are closed mysteries. And one of them pretends not to be. Not going to tell you which one. But one of them would have you think it's this usual Columbo and then you get to a certain point and it's like, oh, I didn't actually know who'd done it after all. But generally speaking, do you think that it's a good approach? Yes, why not? Yeah. As long as they're satisfactory. Do the occasional open. Yeah, it's it's There'll be about... fixed rules about you do it one week and then the other and so on and that kind of thing. Oh no, just do it when you've got a good idea, really. 
the fifth episode, Stinksting Scorpio, I do want to mention one bit, which is Esther finds herself working out of a shop in Brighton and quite next door, but just across the road is a little cafe where Bob Sherman is working as a sort of hippie songwriter. But the guy who owns the cafe is terribly camp. And just for a moment, you think, they're almost getting into the Beryl Marston format. <laughs> Frank Gatliff, isn't it, plays the cafe on yes. Beryl Marston would have been very different if Robert Powell had tried to murder her, particularly if it had been every week. <laughs> At least I would, have, I would have been more behind the idea of them getting together than her and Gareth Hunt. Well, let's not go back oh, to recasting. Yes, yes, yeah. Beryl Marston. Cause we so could episode be six, The Horns of the Moon. It's got a sort of end of term feel to it. Yeah, well, let, let's just go through the cast list. I can't tell you much about Ronald McLeod and Gillian Rain. Well, I'm going to say that that's my problem. And they're probably people with fascinating histories. But let's go through the ones. That... Norman Chapel, the frightened man from Dawson Wells <laughs> Mysteries. Graham Crowden. And any time he turns up on our TV, my wife goes, who's that? It's, it. it's the groper. <laughs> it's a Callan thing. Speaking of Callan, Michelle Dotrice. I- I'm just assuming that everybody who's downloading this is applauding every time we read out a name. Peter Egan. Peter Jones. And as a doctor, Keith Smith. A fish blender in a sperm factory. Hey. Uh, you-, you know the Spike Milligan sketch, Flim Flam Flom? No. I probably do, actually, but I don't... It's it's the game show one, where his he's, his wig is covered in dust, and Keith Smith plays one of the contestants. Well, no, sorry, Keith Smith plays two of the contestants, and the first time we see him, he, he gives his occupation as sperm donor, and the person opposite is a blender in a fish factory or something. And then when he plays another contestant, his occupation is I'm a fish blender in a sperm factory. <laughs> So this one, everybody's sort of having fun more. And th- this is actually, I suppose, the closest episode you'd say to a 60s Avengers, isn't it, really? Yes, it's got that frothy... It doesn't quite get all the way there. Sometimes I thought the cast were carrying it. It was written by Peter Yeldham, and I don't want to take anything away from that. I don't want to spoil anybody's day, but my faint feeling was just occasionally there's a little bit of having more fun than the audience. Maybe I was just in a bad mood when I watched this. One thing that almost happened that didn't, and I was very disappointed that it didn't, but I could see that it would have completely destroyed any element of dramatic integrity. There's a point where Peter Egan visits Esther's pad and sits himself down with Gradley, and they both move their legs at the same time. And I thought, it's going to be the full-on Markham and Wise routine. <laughs> I thought, they're actually going to do the, the full-on. And I've seen it done with Nigel Hawthorne, and it's brilliant. And I thought, yeah, they're going to do it. And they never do it. They, they threaten to do it, but they don't do it. And I thought, ah, oh, that was so disappointing. that They could have done that for at least two and a half minutes. It does highlight the problem we talked about earlier, though. Peter Egan's character, Tony Weston, his father, General Weston, played by Peter Jones, is murdered. He, of course, is the natural suspect because he's the son. He gets to inherit everything. Peter Egan is not playing any of his usual types. He's actually quite nebbishy and they put some glasses on him, hoping they might get a bit of a make him look nerdier. He's a bit of a bag of nerves. But this whole thing's so right. He's the suspect. But his birth chart shows that he is incapable of violence, and that's just, again, that clash. 
even on the rules of this show where astrology is, it's not just something that works, it's something that everybody knows works. Did they ever really come into contact? Ian Ogilvy, I think, is the only person they come into contact who's like a full-blooded sceptic about it. It doesn't make for a satisfying detective story. Are we giving spoilers away for this one? Go on. I think people know if they want to stop the podcast now. There's not long left. The thing is, though, right? I mean, it was true, wasn't it? Okay, it's not exactly proper policing, but he didn't do it. It's got to be taken into account. Yeah, but it's, it's a matter of satisfying detective story. Sometimes it gets a problem when you're talking about something and somebody brings the rules of the fictional universe into our universe. You ever had a discussion with somebody where they say, why did she leave? She had so much going for her there. I can't understand why she did it. And the answer is, oh, well, the actress got a part in a West End show. No, but why did she? It's like, that's it. The real world (laughs) impinged on it. The real world trumps the fictional world sometimes if you want to explain why certain decisions are made. When it's more debatable, when you don't know what decisions are an actor taking, have they got any idea of a backstory? Are they taking certain routes because they've decided a character would act that way? Or are they operating on an instinct? And can we draw from that instinct some idea of the fictional character's life? But when there's an actual solid real-world reason for it, reason for them leaving, reason for them shaving off their beard, reason for them growing a beard that's it and now i'm talking about how the world of the production the rules of detective fiction so it doesn't matter whether peter egan's character did it or not the rules of detective fiction are being messed around and i criticize it as a work of fiction i'm not criticizing it as real events that happened i criticize it as a work of fiction no 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 now, hang on a second because we've established Usually it's been in conversations in the sitcom club that we've established that each sitcom, for example, has its own set of laws that it abides by. And they're usually established in episode one, and then that's what you expect from then on. So, for example, somebody can make a careless, harsh, cutting remark in a Vince Powell sitcom, for example, and it's simply brushed away, it's forgotten about. Whereas if the same line was delivered in maybe like a Carl Lane sitcom or a Victoria Woods sitcom, it would perhaps carry more weight and would be quite upsetting to the character involved because that's the rules that are established from day one. Now, in Zodiac, like you said right at the outset, astrology is presented as if it's something worth paying attention to. So therefore, by the time it gets to episode six, there should be any question that if it's Esther... mean, it's not a problem for episode it's a problem for the entire format the series rests on. It's detective fiction has been watered down by something that doesn't Who's work who's writing the rules detective of detective fiction? Because if we're gonna take real if we're actually gonna say Alright, gonna... did you think this was a good series? If somebody says a really, really big fan of detective shows, particularly ones from the 70s, have you got a recommendation? Are you going to reach for this? Well, of course not. That's not the point. No, that is my point. That is my point. That is why you didn't enjoy this as a 70s detective series. That's why it didn't hold together, because one of the elements it rested on clashed with another element it rested on, and that's why it's not a satisfying show. Overall, despite the fact that Anton Rogers and Anuska Hempel, by the end, they've developed a fantastic chemistry, and we can talk next time. <laughs> Nearly gave a game away there. Right, are we done? I think we've got enough in the can. I'm not, I'm not, I, I have to say, I'm not convinced by this argument because I think that you're applying 
the laws of other detective fiction to this show, and the show itself is allowed to make up. Did, its own was this rules. a good detective series? Number two, well, it was a good detective series. Was it a good series itself? Was it a good series? It was all right. <laughs> uh, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> stop there right so what are we talking about in two weeks time as a follow-up to the zodiac game next time we're talking about virtual murder he's a man she's a woman they solve things together there's a little bit of a fantasy element there's talk about the avengers in the publicity surrounding it and yet if it is talked about positively it's often qualified and it definitely wasn't a hit so we're going to talk about what we think it might get right what we think it might get wrong why those things might have happened and why the 90s was not really a very good time at least in the first half to be trying to launch television fantasy of a certain kind and outrageously because i think that there's only so far that you and i can take this conversation outrageously we've actually managed to corral somebody else into watching this series as well so to find out who that is because you know we've we've given away a lot of mysteries today you'll have to come back in two weeks time so in the meantime you can hear all the previous Jaffa Cakes for Proust podnose.com where you will find all manner of other audible treats not audible the online bookstore and also you find all the previous editions of the sitcom club as well and there's going to be two of them two of them in May car it's just like the old days isn't it in the meantime if you've got anything at all for us you can email us feedback at sitcomclub.com you can find us on twitter at jaffas for proust and the sitcom club you can find us on facebook as well yeah don't forget the competition if you want to record a theme tune to zodiac which explains the entire relationship between the two central characters in one go and you'll win secondhand copy of robin cook's autobiography guaranteed we are thinking it's about time that maybe we had a Jaffa Cake mailbox. So we're open to more general inquiries. I've actually got an idea for Jaffa Cake mailbox. I think that there is a show which is currently airing on television in the UK, by which I mean it's a repeat. And I think that that would be a very good glue with which to hold the mailbag together because we've had quite a lot of correspondence on a particular show recently. It's a show which is currently airing on the very fine, probably the best channel on UK TV today, <laughs> Talking Pictures. You've just tweeted what show I'm talking about. Yes. And if you want to just have a we look at the Sky EPG and if you stumble across a half an hour soap opera called Together, maybe give it a watch and we might discuss that in the forthcoming mailbag episode. We do like to sort of go off on our tangents and play all manner of what happened next recasting and that, that show offers so much. Because it is literally a blank canvas. So your mind can't help but wander when you watch it and you start thinking things about the biscuit tin, for example. <laughs> so, in the meantime, Tilt, who have you been? I've been me, as always. I've been myself. And this has been Jaffa Cakes for Proust. <laughs>